0: Our first reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 5, and we begin to read at verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our second reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 3 starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you who live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongues from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for, good, for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. At this point we watched a video about
1: the life of Hey a Christian believer from North Korea. That was Hey and Karen already, unknown to me, I didn't know that she was going to talk about Hye Woo earlier. Karen's already told us a little bit about um, the situation and the circumstances that they face in North Korea. But Hye Woo is an an astonishing woman, and she has an amazing story to tell. Last year, I was very privileged to be at an event where I was able to hear her tell her story in more detail than we could hear on the, the video. Through an interpreter, she spoke of the things she had suffered and the hardship that she'd endured, awful conditions that would sicken you to hear, and beyond what we could believe one human could subject another to. But what came across as she spoke more than anything was that this was a woman who truly loved Jesus. Despite everything she'd witnessed and the horrific beating she'd endured, she had complete and utter faith in God his love and his grace, and his power to change people and to change circumstances. At one point, she spoke of the heart that God had given her to share her faith with her fellow prisoners. Just think how radical and dangerous that was. If the guards had overheard her or found out that she was talking about Jesus, the consequences would have been severe. And yet, her deep faith and overwhelming conviction of the truth that God is sufficient in all circumstances meant she felt compelled to share what she believed, regardless of the consequences. In her words, she says, the Bible verses that I'd recall from memory gave the others hope. They also saw the Spirit at work in me. I stood out among the other prisoners because I helped them. Sometimes... I shared my rice with the sick. Occasionally, I washed their clothes, too. God used me to lead five people to faith. I tried to teach them the little I knew about Jesus. I didn't have access to a Bible in the camp. But on Sundays and at Christmas, we met together out of the view of the guards. Usually, that was in the toilet. There, we held a short service. I taught them the Bible verses and songs that I knew. We sang, almost inaudibly, so that no-one would hear us. And in front of the thousands of people that were gathered in that room, she sang in Korean, like she sang on the video, the first verse of Amazing Grace, just in a whisper, like she would have to have done in a prison camp. And then, as the congregation joined in, we also began to sing in that whisper, But then, in this powerful expression of our ability and our gratitude that we were able to worship in freedom, we began to sing louder. The noise grew and it filled the space. It's really hard to explain in words what that felt like as several thousand people celebrated their freedom to worship the living Lord God. Certainly for me, it was an extremely humbling experience. To see firsthand evidence of a faith which had been tried and tested to such an extreme, but still remained so firm and unshakable. I really felt challenged about the depth of my conviction, and it made me question how prepared I would be to risk everything for my faith. A few weeks ago, we sang a song that contained these words Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. Maybe you remember singing them. Perhaps they're words that are very familiar to you. Perhaps you even sang them without really thinking about what you were saying. Would you sing them in quite the same way if you were in a labor camp because you were a Christian? Would you sing them in quite the same way if someone demanded you renounce your faith as a gun was held to your head? Every day across the world, there are people who face extreme persecution because of their faith, who share in Christ's suffering, sometimes even to the point of death. Thankfully, we don't. And hopefully we never will face anything like that in this country. However... In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that we are all part of the body of Christ. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. We must continue to do to, to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters in our prayers. But I do think their faith and their dependence on God has so much to teach us. We might not have to face the same extreme situations as them. But as Hewu said in the video, the testing of her faith under such extreme conditions felt to her like a purifying, purifying of her faith. Maybe sometimes we've been guilty of making our faith too comfortable, or we've been too quick to count the cost of following Christ. Today As has already been said, and you've probably kind of worked out, we come to the eighth and the last of the Beatitude. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before we explore a little more about this final Beatitude and the verses that follow it, that kind of link in with it, I think it's worth taking a moment to look back over all the previous ones. And to sum up some of the things that we've spoken about in the last few weeks. The Beatitudes show us the distinguishing marks of a life lived under the blessing of God. Not steps that we must complete before we can call ourselves a Christian. Our salvation is not something we can earn by our own efforts. Our salvation is through Christ's death and resurrection. But instead, they are the evidence of a new life in Christ Jesus. What life looks like when we are truly Christ-like in our attitude. The words of the Beatitude are hugely significant, and we really should take seriously the challenge and the blessing that Jesus offers in these words. And I think the order in which they come is really significant. The way that one flows into the next. And one of the most helpful explanations I've heard is by a writer called Colin Smith which I'll try and paraphrase the things that he said. So he uses the idea of a plant to illustrate how the order of the Beatitudes allow us to respond to the blessings of God so that we can deepen our faith. And he splits them into three sections, root, shoot, and fruit. The first Beatitudes deal with our need of God. Firstly, we recognize that we're poor in spirit because we don't have what it takes to live in the way that God commands. Secondly, we mourn because we recognize that we're not the people that God intends us to be. And that then leads to meekness, a quiet steadiness as we trust God, commit our ways to him and wait for his leading and guidance in our lives. So those are the roots. God uses the roots of our recognition of our need to produce the shoot of a deep longing to grow in righteousness. Having a healthy appetite for God. That's how Paul described it when he talked a few weeks ago on that beatitude. A hunger and a thirst to be in the right place with God. To be in that place of truly trusting God where our lives are lived in the right way, a way that reflects the character of God, in the way that we use our words, in our attitudes, in our actions, living with integrity and seeking to demonstrate God's love and justice in the way that we treat others. So what follows from this root of recognition of our need and the shoot of this deep longing to grow in righteousness is that we will bear fruit, showing mercy, being pure in heart, having an undivided heart in our devotion to God, being peacemakers. So those are the first seven Beatitudes, and they show us a vision for a life transformed by true discipleship in Christ. But the eighth Beatitude is slightly different. Rather than reflecting the character that God's people should pursue, the beat. The beatitude tells us that persecution will pursue us when we live in the light of the previous beatitudes. I think it quite nicely bookends with the first beatitude. Both being poor in spirit and being persecuted because of righteousness offer the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. It seems to me that if we genuinely recognise how great our need is for God, then we'll be prepared to risk everything to live in the way that he intends. This beatitude tells us that the result of living a righteous life is persecution and hostility. There is a cost to true discipleship. But the reward is great, a promise of a reward in heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. This is why Hei Wu and millions of persecuted Christians have been willing to risk everything for their faith. If you remember in the video, she tells how her husband said that even if he was to die, that he knew he would be in heaven. He had no regrets, because he had hope for heaven above. He was so convinced of the truth of God's promises. Many years ago, when I was still living at home, my sister had a poster on her wall which read, If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? A little corny, maybe, but it has stuck with me all this time, and the underlying message is pretty challenging if we take it seriously. The Beatitudes have shown us how to live a life transformed. If we listen to the words of Jesus, really listen, and put them into action, then we'll be living lives that are countercultural. Some of the things that Peter said about being compassionate, showing mercy, not repaying evil with evil. That slide, right, sorry. Um, and when people insult you, repay them with a blessing. Those are not the usual way of doing things. Showing mercy, being pure in heart, and being a peacemaker. That's not the usual way the world lives. There should be distinguishing marks of a life under God's blessing evident in you. If people can look at us and say, well, you're no different than anyone else, then it seems to me we ought to be questioning how sincere we are in our discipleship. Verse 11 doesn't say... Blessed are you if people insult you. It says when. Blessed are you when people insult you because of your right, for righteousness. There is an expectation almost that a life lived under the lordship of Christ, a life of love and integrity that reflects the, his character, will be so at odds with the value that the world holds that hostility will be an inevitable consequence. So because of this, it seems to me, we often do all we can to avoid any sort of confrontation and the hostility that we might consider to be persecution. In particular situations or circumstances, we choose not to reveal too much about our faith and the things that we believe. Tomorrow morning, your neighbor and your colleague will probably say, how was your weekend? Did you do anything nice? And I wonder what you'll say in reply. I wonder what I'll say. Oh, it was fine. Nothing exciting. I took the kids, did a bit of football, did some shopping, did a bit of cleaning. Why is it that we don't say, you know, I had a really great time at church? Or we had this really interesting theme at church this Sunday. Can I, can I tell you about it? I suppose we're afraid of the reaction that we might get. Equally, We know there are conversations and discussions that we have in our workplaces and with our neighbours where we know we should speak out, but we don't. We just stay silent. Earlier, I said that in this country, we don't face extreme persecution in the same way as those in other countries across the world. That's true, and we should be grateful every day for our freedom to worship. However, it does seem to me that rather than the violent oppression of other countries, We're faced instead with this silent repression. The views of Christians seem to be increasingly marginalised, and there is a suspicion of what people would refer to as organised religion. A recent survey of 12,000 Christians by the Ordinary Christian Organisation said that 93% felt that Christian views were being marginalised, 50% had experienced some form of prejudice, and 26% felt unable to be open about their faith in the workplace. It might be helpful to understand a little about the philosophical and ideological views that currently characterise our society. It essentially goes something like this. The goal of life is understood to be that we decide who we are for ourselves. We create our own identity, we create our own story. But they never quite become fixed, they're in flux. The only story that matters is mine, And I'll display that by the way I choose to present myself to the world, the clothes I wear, the material possessions that I own. Image is increasingly significant, and part of the image I create around myself is in the virtual world, which is a reality in its own right. Anything that seeks to define me or my place in the world, or is seen to be taking away my need to be individual, is oppressive and limits my ability to fulfill my potential. These views present real issues. As Christians, we believe that we do not create ourselves. We believe that everyone has been created for a purpose by a creator God who loves us and gives us an identity. We recognize that we are not accountable just to ourselves, but that our thoughts, our words, and our actions are known to God and that we stand under his judgment, his mercy, and his grace. We understand that we're part of a big picture through history of a God who loves his creation and wants to restore all things to himself through Christ's death and resurrection. Because these views appear to be in opposition to those of our society, we seem to be increasingly speaking from the margins. So there will be those who say well then, how can we make Christianity relevant today? But I would answer that by saying, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love, his forgiveness, it's relevant to every person at every time, at every moment in history. We do not have to make Christ relevant What we're called to do is relate what we personally know about him and how we have experienced his love and his faithfulness in our own lives. I think part of the reason we're fearful about speaking about our faith and fearful of leaving ourselves open to hostility is that we feel we must defend doctrines and theological positions. I don't think that's what Peter means when he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We don't have to give clever answers. Earlier in that same verse, it tells us that we should revere Christ as Lord. I think in the reading it said, to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. In other words, to worship Christ as Lord of our lives, to put him at the very centre of all that we think and do and say. And if we do that, then naturally our lives and our words will overflow with the hope that he gives. Christians have, at times, been accused of being judgmental and critical. To do it with gentleness and respect is the way that Peter says at the end. Do this with gentleness and respect. The verse reminds us that we are to explain what we believe in a way that reflects the character of Christ. We can speak into the very heart of our society by showing others the truth that our identity is found in Christ, that we can only truly know who we are when we recognize and understand the depths of his love. We can challenge the negative perceptions held by some parts of society by not just speaking respectfully about Christian values but by actually living them out in a practical way. If we want to be able to challenge others' views and opinions, we first have to live distinctly Christ-like lives. We have to live with integrity. And you see, we're back to those first seven Beatitudes again. But as well as that, we need to be persistent in our prayers for the places and the people whom we find it difficult to share Christ's love with and to speak about our faith. We need to ask God for his Holy Spirit to give us his courage. And we need to remember that if we face hostility, that we are sharing in Christ's suffering, that he understands and that he'll be with us in every circumstance. So, in conclusion. Persecution and hostility are to be expected when we live lives in the light of the Beatitudes. We need to remember and pray for those Christians across the world who daily face extreme and violent persecution. We need to pray also for those organizations like Open Doors who do so much to help and to highlight the needs of persecuted Christians. And there's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Have I made my faith too comfortable? Am I willing to take risks in sharing my faith? Or do I prefer that no one really knows about it? So here's a bit of homework for you. This week, I want you to think about the place where you feel most unable to share your faith. Ask God to give you opportunities this week to share something of your faith. Maybe it'll be as simple as saying that you went to church instead of avoiding the subject. Maybe it'll be a chance to challenge a view during a discussion. Or maybe it'll be something as simple as demonstrating in a practical way the love and mercy that Christ has shown you. Remember what Hewu said? They also saw the Spirit at work in me. I stood out among the other prisoners because I helped them. Sometimes I shared my rice with the sick. Occasionally I washed their clothes too. One of the greatest ways that we can witness to the overwhelming love and mercy of God is by showing others that same love, by showing compassion, showing mercy, helping in practical ways, challenging social injustice. In what ways is God calling you to step out of your comfort zone this week?